0: We're going hopping, hop. we're going hoppin' today When things are poppin' pop. the Philadelphia way We're gonna drop it and all the music they play On the bandstands Is
1: Dave a boomer? No <laughs> There he is, <laughs> Dick Clark, American bandstand Rate a record
2: yeah. <laughs> Now we have the uh, gazebo update Just put the, the rain, the snow, all the, uh, the meteorological tumult out of, out of your mind And uh, let's focus on gazebos uh, and one in particular, Felix, tell us this story.
1: Well, this is up in Everett, up in the Snohomish County, county seat. Um, we learned last week that Mayor Cassidy Franklin had targeted the gazebo in historic Clark Park for demolition. Um, this is Clark Park, uh, the city's earliest park, dates back to the 1890s. The gazebo was built in 1921. It's a north part of downtown, a neighborhood called, they call Bayside. So last month on Facebook, the mayor did said she wants to tear it down and put in an off-leash dog area, Right. Uh, both steps aimed, aimed at reducing crime. You remove a place where people can take shelter and attract more park users with a much wanted new amenity. You know, in the park business, they call it activating a space. You get the good people in there doing stuff and makes the yeah. bad people run away, right? Exactly. So, Clark Park is on the city's historic register. The Everett Historical Commission is an advisory board, and they get asked to approve changes to anything that's any building or any historic place in the city. They're all volunteers, and they have very little actual power, I learned last night. And so last night at their regular meeting, on very short notice, the city came and sought the Historical Commission's approval to demolish the 1921 gazebo. There's some debate about the city's request, and this is sort of in the weeds here, but whether it should take the form of a waiver, waiving the fact that it's a historical resource and giving permission to tear it down, or if it should be a certificate of appropriateness, which is like if you want to change the color of your gutters on your historic home, you get a certificate of appropriateness from the commission. And that's the city wanted the latter, the easy approach to just like give us a certificate of appropriateness to tear down. It was very, very, in, very complicated. And that, that went on for a long time, the discussion at this meeting last night at City Hall in Everett. Now, um, I talked about the last minute nature of this thing. The commissioners, I think, were given their packets on this right before moments before the meeting started. And that was the first comment that um, the chair of the commission, Patrick Hall, made. I would like to start by um, objecting
2: to the fact that this was presented to the commission at the very last moment. This is not part of our packet, and we did not see this until right before the meeting.
1: They like to get things several days in advance so they can study it. These people are architects and planners, and they get this sort of thing. Anyway, now, the reason for the last-minute nature was never really fully explained, but it's consistent with a kind of a willy-nilly feel that I've learned about this project in the past week. Two city staffers gave a presentation. One was Everett Planning Director of York, Stevens Wajda. The other was Parks Director Bob Leonard. The theme was that the gazebo attracts unhoused and mentally ill people and drug users and fosters criminal behavior, and that it needs to come down and be replaced with some interpretive signage and some old photos to commemorate what was there before, and that even pieces of the gazebo could be used in the fence or other design of the off-leash dog area. Parks Director Bob Leonard said a few times the gazebo was too expensive to maintain and that Bayside residents wanted to go. So the meeting was open to public comment, and a Bayside resident and a member of the Bayside Neighborhood Association named Jane McClure got up to speak. She said it was with a heavy heart that the city and her neighborhood group had arrived at the idea of getting rid of the old gazebo.
3: We never had an intention of having the gazebo removed. I entertained extraordinarily exaggerated ideas about just how phenomenal we could make the gazebo and return it to the jewel of the center of Clark Park. And it's just not feasible because we can't look Uh, Our neighborhood and the people who live in our neighborhood can no longer look at this just as this historical significance of this, because even if it's renovated, how are you going to maintain it? How is it going to stay? Pristine,
1: And that Bayside neighborhood group has done events there throughout the year for many many years. They have like a Christmas carol singing event and like a dog uh, event in the summer and stuff. So they they've tried to activate the space. Now a few other Bayside residents also spoke in favor of demolition for essentially the same reasons as Jane McClure had given. Then a man got up and offered an alternative viewpoint and expressed dismay at how the gazebo issue has been handled by the city of Everett.
4: I would have hoped for there to be tran- this to be transparent and something that was well advertised. That had not been the case
2: and stating that the neighborhood doesn't want the gazebo in the park is disingenuous. The association doesn't speak for everyone who lives in the neighborhood, and leaning on their approval
5: rather than making this process transparent shows a complete lack of uh, of respect for the
4: neighborhood.
1: And a woman named Deb Fox spoke. She was attending virtually. She's been working on a project to install interpretive panels at Clark Park, kind of like what the parks director was talking about with old photos and stuff, uh, to commemorate the gazebo if it was torn down.
5: I sympathize with the neighbors and the riffraff that goes on that they have to witness, but I'm really hoping there's a way that there can still be a dog park and keep the gazebo because, in the end, the interpretive signage is not a replacement for that beautiful structure.
1: And the board discussion was interesting. They jumped around a lot, and some board members were clearly pro-Gazebo. Others were a little harder to read. I think three of the six members there in person said they wished they'd had more time to review, review the materials and come up with some kind of a coherent proposal. Now, at one point, Historical Commission Chair Patrick Hall said he simply wasn't convinced that demolishing the gazebo would solve all the public safety problems. And so that gave him an idea for what, to me, seemed like a brilliant compromise.
2: Try activating the park first. Try building the dog park. And then, if you still need to demolish, if you know, then and the, you know, a year or two later, if we decide that this is still a problem, then take another look at it. Then, but I think if you have six hundred people with dogs that are in that park all the time, I think that'll solve all of our problems by itself.
1: Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And you still have to address gazebo issues. There is some uh, deferred maintenance needs to be addressed. And they've in the past they fenced the whole thing off just to keep it. You know, it's ugly. They call you free the gazebo. Um, But the idea would be to not go to this unreversible step of uh, demolition right away. So, ultimately, the Historical Commission voted to delay deciding on the city's request so there could be more time to explore some of the alternatives, maybe raise some money, maybe see if there's a way to bring all the community groups together to actually talk about it. And when the meeting was over, I couldn't get any of the staffers to go on the record, and the city spokesperson had gone home for the night don't have an official reaction from the city of Everett, but I caught up with some of those Bayside residents out in the hallway. Jane McClure, who we heard from, said the meeting went well. She loved how people were listening to each other. She's supportive of Chairman Patrick Hall's idea to build the dog park first, give it a year or two to see if it addresses the problem. So there's lots of good momentum right now. I don't know if the city is happy. I don't know if Mayor Franklin is happy. But the people who actually live in Bayside and the other Everett people who care about history, they seemed happy about the the, the solution that Patrick Hall suggested. So... So it probably won't happen, I guess, is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, one other thought. I have a weird a thought about that. I was sitting there last night. Okay, 25 years ago, you didn't have the problems of the um, the housing shortage, right. the acute mental health crisis, the acute drug abuse crisis. Now you do have that, right? So 25 years ago, you didn't have these problems in Clark Park. No one talked about tearing down the gazebo. What I feel, if you decide to tear down the gazebo because of those problems right now, you're essentially conceding those problems are here to stay. That yeah. 10 years from now, you'll still have those same issues driving people to this gazebo. And that seems like a really dark road to go down. And I don't, I don't want to concede that those problems are here to stay. Felix Spinell, all his features are at
2: mineouthwest.com. Thank you, Felix. We go to Washington, D.C., where Congress is looking to avoid a government shutdown. Let's hear from CBS congressional correspondent Scott McFarlane.
4: It looks like they're about to hit another snooze button, Dave. Maybe pause this another week or two, give themselves more time still to negotiate and figure out a bigger plan. So instead of a deadline of this Friday and next Friday, they're probably going to punt it for one to two more weeks deeper into March. But that doesn't mean the brinksmanship's over. It just means that for a fourth time since September 30th, they're delaying the brinksmanship.
2: I was uh, listening to the Democratic-Republican briefings, and it sounds like both sides, uh, even the Republicans, were saying, we don't want to do this, we don't want to do this. Is the current hang-up still over aid to Ukraine and Israel?
4: It's actually a separate battle at this point. The current hang-up is how much should the government be spending in general? Should they be cutting what they spend? Should they be trying to find ways to at least minimally cut down the deficit. There's push by some Republicans to get some of the more controversial policy changes they want enacted into these bills to keep the government open. You know, they want to do any number of things to impact Biden administration initiatives and cut back on things the Biden administration wants to do. But none of that's going to pass the Senate nor is that going to be signed by the president. So what the speaker is trying to do is kind of contain some of that right flank, keep the doors open, keep the lights on as he does so.
2: Are there any actual budget hearings going on, you know, where the where the experts sit down and say, here's where we need to spend more money, here's where we need to spend less money, so that there's some rationality to the cuts?
4: That's like a next-level thing that they haven't given themselves the luxury of doing. They're just trying to keep doors open right now. They're just trying to keep government functioning. The longer-term planning is a <laughs> it's more of a luxury at this point. I'll tell you this. There is certainly you know, a discussion of deficits and, and budget priorities happening informally, you know, behind closed doors, you know, that the appropriators are still talking about what they could do in the long term. But this Congress has been so dysfunctional and so gridlocked. They haven't had the ability to do the long-term planning and the long-term budgeting they're supposed to be doing. It's one of the reasons why this particular Congress is going to win a trophy for distinctive dysfunction.
2: CBS Congressional Correspondent Scott McFarlane. As for the Republican impeachment inquiry accusing President Biden of profiting from his son Hunter's business dealings, the committee's star witness, ex-FBI informant Alexander Spurnoff, has himself been impeached, basically. He's under arrest for lying to the FBI and seems to be in the pocket of Vladimir Putin. So I ask, Scott, if that might affect the Republicans' Enthusiasm for pushing ahead with this—it
4: so sure does kneecap. Cap. It doesn't it? it if the justification you've been giving for this entire impeachment inquiry is that you know, they think President Biden took bribes, and the reason they think that is because some FBI informant said it. Well, geez, the FBI informant's pretty important to the whole enterprise. The FBI informant's been accused of not only lying about that, but lying because Russia planted the story with him. So, yeah, this cuts the legs out of the impeachment inquiry quite a bit. That notwithstanding, they're going to have Hunter Biden today for what I'm told is a marathon, closed-door deposition. There will be no video recording, but there will be a transcript kept. And members of Congress will come in and out of the room and tell us what they say is happening there. Um, They're actually going to alternate, Dave. Republicans get the first hour. Democrats get the next hour. Back and forth till dark tonight. Um, And I would expect the Democrats to filibuster a bit give long-winded speeches to give Hunter Biden the chance to grab a soda, grab a snack, get his breath before the next hour of Republican questions begin. Um, but I, I don't think anybody here has any concept of what an impeachment article would look like right now or when one would be voted on. That FBI whistleblower being um, charged criminally with false reporting and false stories takes a lot of wind out of the sales. Oh, is
2: that going to be on C-SPAN? Because that would be, that'd be must-see TV for me.
4: If only it were, if only it were, every, th- every component of this is outside of the view of cameras, not just under Biden's deposition today, but <laughs> the criminal case of this FBI is also out of the sight of cameras. The only thing you will see is some of the more provocative, um, colorful members of Congress in both parties going to, rushing to, running toward the cameras today to give their spin on what's happening in the room.
2: CBS congressional correspondent Scott McFarlane. Right now we're going to talk about the uh, article that we saw in the Seattle Times last week. It was about a study that examined the conversations parents across the country had with their children during the height of the Black Lives Matter movement. The author of that study is Dr. Ani Rogers. She's a researcher at Northwestern University's Department of Psychology. And we called her up to ask her why she felt this was important to study.
6: Well, one of the main motivations behind it was some prior research that we had been doing with young people about their own experiences and understandings of race and broad societal issues. And so we had published a paper looking at how elementary age children uh, were thinking about Black Lives Matter back in 2016 and 2017 um, after the murder of Michael Brown and how that moment actually was shaping the way children thought about what race means, how they're understanding their own identities, how they interact with others. And so when summer 2020 um, hit and we were all, uh, you know, really grappling with racism in really profound ways, the major protest, again, a murder um, um, at the hands of the police uh, it raised questions of, you know, what are parents doing, given that we know kids are thinking about these things and are responsive to such events? What are parents doing? Are they having these conversations? And if so, what do they sound like?
7: It was almost impossible to avoid the conversation if you had kids at that time, because there were people on every corner, especially if you live near a major city, which, you know, we're in Seattle. So if you're in the suburbs, you're seeing people protest, your kids are asking questions. So what did you find from parents? Were they acknowledging rape? Racial inequity.
6: You know, it really varied. So first of all, we were surprised to see um, that 80% of the parents, we had over 700 parents who completed the research with us, and 80% of them reported that they had talked about the Black Lives Matter movement and had this conversation with their child. And we were really targeting parents who had kids between the ages of 8 and 11. Um, So that in and of itself was a shocking finding. But as we dug into what parents said and the content of those conversations, uh, we We found that about 20% of white parents who said they were talking about Black Lives Matter were doing so in ways that acknowledged racial inequality, the history of racism, that named racism specifically in that conversation, whereas for Black parents, we found it was... um, 60 percent, I think, over 60 percent of black parents who were acknowledging inequality in these ways Um, and also related to that affirming just the value of black life. And so I think what we found was very different ways that black and white parents were um, engaging that conversation with their kids. Do you know why
7: that is? Is it lack of language, information, or is it a, a typical whitewashing of history and events?
6: Well, I think it's not a simple answer. There are multiple factors that go into it. One thing that's very clear is proximity. So for black families, Um, talking about and acknowledging racism is close to our lived experiences, right? So the way in which you engage that conversation is different when it's directly related to um, your group or how you are perceived in the world. Whereas a white family, it is something that can be seen as very distant and something that's not necessarily about you. And therefore the urgency or sense of necessity to have the conversation feels more optional. So that's part of it. And then, as you said, the whitewashing, we certainly have... A very strong narrative still in the United States that racism is something of the past and that's not something that we have to contend with in the present. And so there is a tendency to take racialized moments or events and whitewash them, sterilize them, sort of remove the racial component um, from it and talk more generally um, about, you know, treating everyone equally or um, being inclusive of everyone, but not actually naming the racism that's driving that inequity.
2: We're hearing Dr. Ani Rogers, who teaches psychology at Northwestern University. So now that she's collected this information on how families talked about the Black Lives Matter movement with their kids, what do you do with the information?
6: I think there's a couple ways that we've been thinking about it. One is it really helps the broader effort, which we saw during 2020 as well, of just sort of recognizing that having the conversation is important, that um, kids are growing up in, in a world where, you know, our larger narratives about how things work and who's valued and who's not, um, they're learning these things. And so, you know, we saw the, the notable impact of some of just the campaigning, I would say, around encouraging parents to talk about race. And so we see the shift where so many more parents were at least acknowledging and saying, you know, I should say something in this moment, which, you know, historically has not been, been the case, particularly for white parents. Um, so really, you know, leveraging um, that momentum and the value of that. Does your study offer or
7: will it offer any guidance for particularly white parents to talk about race in a meaningful way, not just everyone should be equal, but actually talk about racial injustices. I can see, uh, you know, a a white family in a homogenous community of which there are many struggling to come up with the right. They want to right? The intent is there, but they don't know how to talk about it because they don't have lived experience.
6: They don't have a close friend who can help them. What do they do? One of the insights from the work is all of the kids are the same age, so 8 to 11. And there has been a a long sort of standing story that young kids don't think about race or they're not really aware, they're too young, they're not ready for these types of conversations. Um, And I think over the last decade or so, we've really demonstrated that kids are thinking about these things they are aware and so it's not too soon it's not too early and they're more than you know prepared to have meaningful conversations um and so one thing that comes through in this research is showing that black families offer a really useful model for how to have these conversations so there are a number of ways in which um, some of the quotes we've included and ways that parents you know engage the conversation with um specificity and sort of naming the any equality, the history, even just you know, affirming that black lives are important, you know that it is not something that's just dispensable, which can get very embedded in our narratives of, you know, this was just one case or one event and it's not that big of a deal. So, you know, those types of strategies um, that we see black families doing with their kids who are eight, nine and 10 years old, white parents can also do.
2: Dr. Ronnie Rogers of Northwestern University.
6: Now for your daily dose of kindness brought to you by
7: Heritage Homecraft. Ethan Hierro, a five-year-old boy who's rattling, battling brain cancer, had his dream of becoming a police officer come true, all thanks to the Terrytown Police Department in New York. Isabel Estevez, Ethan's mother, tells News 12 Westchester he wanted to be a police officer since he was three years old.
6: He really, really always arresting everyone in the house <laughs> and putting <laughs> us in jail, and it's just... It's just Ethan.
7: Well, last Tuesday, the brave young recruit was sworn in. He got a police escort and proudly presented his very own shield.
2: How are you, Ethan? I'm the chief. Are you going to work with us?
7: Yes. <laughs> About 16 months ago, Ethan was diagnosed with glioblastoma, a form of brain cancer with no cure.
6: It changed our life 100%. Always scared of what's going to happen. You know, it's just so... Uncertain that, you know, like I was working and I have to leave my job, and it's just changed everything.
7: Well, the Terrytown Police Department did something they've never done before—they granted a wish, and that was a wish for Ethan. Police Chief John Barblett.
2: We went and found a uh, a uniform, a general uniform online
4: that uh, we purchased for Ethan, and then we had it customized. We had our patches put on the sleeves by a local tailor
7: they picked him up for his first day of work with a procession of police cars he went to the police academy where he met all the recruits the bomb sniffing dogs got his very own mini police vehicle too they had made ethan
6: a blast day today right buddy (laughs) um it's been incredible.
7: Ethan and his family have a long road ahead of them, but his mom says they're thankful for a day to focus on this act of kindness.
2: Th- did they at least let him arrest somebody? I'm
7: sure. <laughs> arrest <laughs> the police chief.
2: And now from the Jen Ursula Show, here is Ursula Reutin. You Good saw morning. the story about the protest at Seattle City Hall. I sure did. Usually it's, uh, you know, protests are pretty much part of the whole theater there at the city council right
3: yes and in years past usually the city council would cave to the demands yeah but i'm i'm gonna say that i am proud of how the city council responded yesterday it's
2: a new sheriff in town sounds like yeah
3: yeah absolutely so these uh, protesters were uh purportedly uh, speaking on behalf of refugees who've been staying at this uh camp in Tequila, a, a church has been getting. This is 800. Yeah, yeah. They so, have served I mean, the, the, 800 people since the, the this number, began in 2022. Yes, and the number has just kept growing. And the pastor has said in the past, I don't know where the word is getting out that, that <laughs> you can come here, but they're coming. And there is no real plan for them. And then when we had that real cold spell in, in January, um, they were demanding to be put somewhere where they could get out of these horrible conditions. And they've described the conditions at that camp as being awful, which I'm sure they are. Mm -hmm. But my question is, this is happening in the city of Tequila, the hotel where they were staying temporarily, which by the way, was funded by Seattle city council and, and the city of Seattle, I should say the mayor Harrell and the Seattle city council agreed the first time around, um, why is this a city of Seattle problem when we're talking about this uh, this camp that is in, in Tequila and these hotels that are in down in South King County? And I found the answer as to why oh, they made it boy. Seattle. Please tell. Us. Because there was uh, a, a refugee who was asked uh, by Como4 News, and they said, well, they were told by their supporters who, and I would argue that some of these supporters are some of those... Uh, I don't want to say professional protesters, but people who will just t- yeah. rise to the occasion for the co- for, for the cause, that Seattle is the place where they will be heard and where people will listen and help and give money. Right. Oh, that's what one person said. Yes. Well, I, I, I'm going to guess just based on but what has happened in the, the past. It's the biggest
2: stage in town.
3: It is the biggest stage. And, and I guess... Kudos! I'm. This is not something I say as very often. As someone who again owns a home in Seattle, works in Seattle, <laughs> I don't say it very often, but. I agree with what the Seattle City Council did yesterday and um, City Council President Sarah Nelson was quoted as saying "You know, the city has an obligation to taxpayers to provide housing for people in need in Seattle like those on 3rd Avenue or in the Chinatown International District and Ballard and I'm also I will say sympathetic to immigrants. I'm an immigrant myself Mm -hmm. relatively recent. I moved to this country in 1978. I was not a, a U.S. citizen and I fully believe in making the have to citizenship easier for people who are deserving of of of, of, of moving and or need to move to another country mm-hmm. and need the help but what they did yesterday in trying to take over a city council meeting wasn't the way to go but it worked
7: i mean six of them got arrested whatever they won't care what they got though was another million dollars from the seattle city council and attention on the issue i don't think a lot of people was were aware s- of
3: this tequila shelter okay this it was it wasn't the city council that gave them the money it was king county well was it king county i feel like sarah yeah. nelson said and we oh no, in the past no, they gave no. money exactly they, and, and, shelter. and that was the problem before my question was why again why city of seattle so they showed their heart they showed compassion but now as as long as you do that and you keep doing that what do you what do you think they're going to do they're going to keep asking for that money yes the city of tequila also stepped up as they should but really it is a more of a state and federal issue or county or yeah, county king exactly. county did step up yeah exactly, exactly. so well, I'll say I mean, it often, but I'm just going to say I agree with what the Seattle City Council did.
2: This has been going on in Tukwila, though, for a long time. I remember covering uh, just a, doing a general assignment story on, you know, the number of languages spoken in the school district there. And the State Department apparently had a policy of resettling people in Tukwila. And once a family's there, word gets out saying this is the community that will welcome you, except they haven't got the facilities.
3: They don't have the facilities. And I guess that word needs to get out now yeah. because it is inhumane, the conditions that they're living in. Yeah, and I don't want them to be also used as a pawn.
2: What, right to the, with oh go uh, ahead.
3: I was just going to ask,
7: what's the denomination of the the church that they're staying at? Is it a Methodist church? I don't know, and I, fe- I feel like the pastor too could reach out to the the larger arm of the church if it was a Catholic church. That's but a, I,
3: th- I think her her message and her feeling has been, hey, you know this this is. Our ministry we are going to welcome everybody anyone who needs help can can come here for help but you can't help people cuz you can't house them
2: yeah Ursula Roy team with G G at nine I want to talk more
3: religion but <laughs>
2: I know you do we're out of time sarah's going to be on at oh, uh, 8:15 we can talk her then. <laughs> At last night's city council meeting, the demonstrators uh, went a little too far and there were arrests. Let's go to City Council President Sarah Nelson. A- and Sarah, we've already discussed the issue that they were protesting, that being the treatment of refugees. But I'm i am curious to know uh, what your take is on the tactics and how the, the uh, city council plans to handle uh, demonstrators going forward.
8: Well, good morning, Gabe. So let me just say right now that I am no stranger to protest myself, and I think it's an important form of civil disobedience. I um, I met my husband at the uh, WTO protest in 99 and was arrested myself in college for Mm -hmm. occupying the chancellor's office. So here's the thing. Yesterday, what happened was that we had a disturbance in chambers, and the only way to uh to go on with the business of the people was to finally um, have people removed uh, by s p d from chambers and um, the the protests that were the protesters that were there yesterday were for you know by all accounts that I could come up with in, in on social media, etc, they were exploiting a human crisis to advance or uh, promote their own political agenda to at city council and so that was dishonest, and uh, we cannot let people interrupt meetings where we have other really important things on the agenda and yesterday. We had the family of the late Senator George Fleming in chambers to accept an honor for uh, for his work being the first black senator of Washington and also starting the housing trust fund. So we had to get on. And you
7: did. Six people arrested. So how much has the Seattle City Council given to this issue of asylum seekers being housed at this Methodist church in Tequila?
8: You know, we haven't. That has not been an, um, a, an item of business before council because that is King County, okay. and so uh, we provided some relief the first time the protesters came on January thirtieth. How much was so that? Really some, you know, I don't know. I do know that the budget allocation was up was two hundred thousand dollars for relief. I don't know how much it cost to um, to house folks at that hotel in Kent.
7: And do we know why the church became the site for asylum seekers?
8: What I understand is that, the, well, the, the people, you mean, the, could you ask your question again? Did you say why the church was?
7: Yeah, because the church is saying, you know, we I don't, don't know, know why people are coming here, but we need money. And I'm just curious your stance on city taxpayer money being used to fund this effort at a church. Why isn't the church funding its own goodwill?
8: Well, we, we did not fund the church. The, those were hotel rooms that were, uh, that were paid for. I don't know why that church has become um, a, a destination. And, uh, and city council has our own funding obligations to our own uh, providers of housing and homelessness services. And so that's where we need to focus our resources.
2: I want to get back to the protesters. As a protester, a seasoned protester yourself. So, what should be the standard for what, what's your message to people who might not like decisions you're making at the city council meeting?
8: Well, I'm always open for meetings. You can send us emails, and um, also if you're going to come to chambers, you be you be respectful. You don't yell over other people who are talking. That was happening for you know for the first couple years that I was in council. Mm-hmm. And you allow the meeting to proceed in an orderly manner so that we can get to the other items on the agenda. That's what you do.
2: But you understand the culture that says um, when they don't listen, we can't just back down and and let it go. We have to keep pushing and pushing and pushing until they listen.
8: Well, that's, that's them. I'm president of the city council. I have to make sure we can get through the items on our agenda.
7: Will arresting disorderly attendees at city council meetings become the new norm now?
8: I sure hope not. (laughs) That was not my goal. You know, what, what I could have done, what I was thinking about doing, which I didn't want to do was simply adjourn the meeting. But, um, but, there was a family in the audience who was there to be honored. And so I, um, no, that is not gonna be the practice at City Council. What I hope will be the practice at City Council is that people sign up for public comment, make public comment and let us get on with our agenda. And, and they were warned, one more thing, yeah. they were asked several times to, uh, to stop talking, to be quiet, etc. So there were several iterations of recess before we had to come to that, um, to that measure.
7: Sure. A lot of patience was definitely practiced. I know council member Kathy Moore had said that her physical safety is being threatened. How was it being threatened by those protesters?
8: Well, we don't know how strong that glass was. OK, mm-hmm. so when chambers was cleared by the officers, we we went on with our meeting. But what separated the inside of the chambers in a couple of was a glass door and wall. And the people were banging on that glass wall and yelling and she it was hard to hear the the council member who was speaking but they i don't know they could have broken that glass and then come on in and, and we're all sitting i don't know within 20 feet of of the of what's going on on the other side
2: mm-hmm. are these uh, protests spontaneous or are they being organized from groups that just want to disrupt things
8: that <laughs> the latter mm-hmm. um it's you know it's these it's clear that these were organizers and activists and protesters that were advancing other agendas. In this case, they didn't want the, um, the, the anti-gun violence technology. They could have gone to the public meeting that was happening that evening in Bitter Lake and, and pressed their case there. Huh. But, you know, they came to uh, City Hall because more visible, etc., the the one in January thirtieth was organized by Stop the Sweep. These are the people that don't like that the city is offering housing to people living in open air drug markets on public property. Okay, so so they are commandeering or hijacking using one issue to advance their um their their political agenda on other issues.
2: I see. This, is had, no, this had nothing to do with the refugees then.
8: You know, it was, it was heartbreaking. It is sickening that maybe there were some people in the audience that were truly there just for that reason. But when, when you're seeing kids running around chambers or running around City Hall and at the same time watching people with S the police on their T-shirt talking to us about, you know, uh, defund and, and all these other issues, it really does beg the question, what are they here for?
2: Yeah. Seattle City Council President Sarah Nelson, thanks for coming on this morning, Sarah. We we appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. We're going to check in with our legislative reporter, Matt Markovich. Both chambers were very busy yesterday talking about guns, income taxes, fertility fraud, and octopuses, Matt.
0: Yep, I had to throw that in there, Dave. Uh, Super busy day yesterday in both the House and the Senate. More bills passed off the floor than any other day of the legislative session. And I I tend to focus on the controversial ones. Oh, here's a couple of them. Yesterday, the Senate uh, passed this uh, firearm dealer bill, which requires employees of firearms uh, dealers to go back, have yearly background checks. Firearm dealers must install alarm and surveillance systems and have safe storage and keep recordings of people buying guns. Now, this is a party-line vote. It already passed the House. It goes back to the House, but the industry is saying this is a big attempt to put gun dealers out of business. So that's one. Now, there was another gun bill uh, that passed the House. It prohibits uh, open carry of guns at libraries, zoos, aquariums, and transit stations. A person with a concealed weapons permit, it's okay. Again, another party-line vote um, because they made some changes. This bill is going to go back to the Senate, but both these gun bills are most likely going to the governor's desk. Uh, Another controversial one regarded voter pamphlets. It requires the people who write arguments for and against ballot measures in local elections for the local election uh, voter pamphlet must reside in that jurisdiction where that election's taking place. Uh-huh. Odd. Uh Odd. It also increases a fine for publishing and distributing campaign material that looks like a voter's pamphlet to $5 per copy or $10,000, whichever is greater. Now, again, this is very controversial. It went right down a party line vote. All the v- Republicans voted no against that. Democrats said yes. And, if, and uh, finally, on the controversial ones... You would think this is not a party-line vote, but it was. Octopus farming is now, will be officially outlawed in the state. And there are no farms right now in the state. But yet it was very controversial, party-line vote. And uh, so we won't have any octopus farms going future. The governor's most, it's going to go to the governor's desk. And then one that wasn't controversial, but I want to bring up, is fertility fraud. Now, in a unanimous decision, the state... Senate approved House Bill 1300, which criminalizes a health care provider's intentional act of using their sperm to commit fertility fraud. It makes an assault in the third degree. You can get up to five years in prison, $10,000 fine. And the actions of the doctor, a health care provider, would also be classified as unprofessional conduct, conduct, regardless, even if they have written consent from the patient to do that. Now here's a sponsor of the bill. Uh, on the Senate side, uh, Derek Stanford, he's a Democrat from Bothell. Unfortunately,
2: this is something that has happened. We've seen more cases come to light with the advent of widespread availability of genetic testing. And it simply should be illegal. And with this bill, it finally will be.
0: And that bill is going straight to the governor's desk. It's uh, universally passed on that one. And finally, uh, the big issue of the day, or the big topic of the day, was the No Income Tax Initiative 2111 had its first and only public hearing. A lot of people watched it. A lot of people signed in to testify. The initiative aimed at preventing any city, county, or state from enacting a personal income tax. But there, but here is what I focus in on, Dave. There was talk of a possible constitutional challenge that came to light. In in a discussion. Now we you know state voters have already rejected uh, state income tax 11 different times. But behind the scenes, opponents, namely Democrats in both the House and the Senate, have been searching for legal landmines that could render the initiative invalid. Now, opponents may have tipped their hand, from what I saw, what appeared to be a scripted exchange between Senator Jamie Peterson, the Democrat from Seattle, and Jeff Mitchell, a staff member of the Senate Ways and Committee, uh, Senate Ways and Means Committee. Now, Peterson's the majority floor leader in the Senate. He asked Mitchell how the initiative defines income, and then Mitchell responded saying that the definition of income is gross income, and it's tied to the federal tax code's definition of gross income, which Congress can... change at any time. So Peterson then asked, what are the risks of having it tied to that federal tax code? And here's how Mitchell responded.
2: It has been held unconstitutional for the legislature to hand off its legislative function to other entities. So more specifically, the state Supreme Court has ruled that an attempt to incorporate future changes in federal laws or regulations is an invalid delegation of legislative power. So in the context of Initiative 2111, uh, potentially violate
0: this principle Hmm. so maybe to to mansplain that is that if congress decides how it wants to make a change in gross income the state initiative is tied to that and you can't the state supreme court has said you know you can't let congress decide what happens in washington state about this definition but the initiative is to oppose
2: an income tax right Excuse me? The initiative is designed to oppose an income tax, right?
0: Correct, correct. Okay, but so. but but if but because if it were to pass in the Senate and the Senate House pass it yeah. or the lo- voters pass it, this is a possible nugget that it could be challenged in the same Supreme Court. If people who don't like this initiative, mm-hmm. they're saying, "Hey, our state supreme court has already said you can't have part of the legislation tied to what the federal government does. So that was a little nugget I saw, a very scripted nugget to announce what could possibly happen, what could possibly happen if this were to pass by the voters. And then, um, and real quickly, a couple people, as we expected, testified for and against it. Steve Gordon, he's from the Concerned Taxpayers of Washington, the group behind the initiative. This initiative should be unnecessary, given that both constitutional precedent and the people have been very clear on multiple occasions however 450,000 people decided that they needed to make that message clear and Marcy Bowers of the poverty action network opposed the initiative
6: what we don't need is to spend time debating proposals like this that are so vaguely worded that they don't actually do anything our time should be spent making changes to the tax code that benefit the people and families who need the support the most
0: so what's going to happen right. now? Well, the the Senate and the House could pass it word for word and then the governor doesn't even have to sign it, it becomes law and the the ballot measure doesn't happen in November. Or they can do nothing and then it goes to the ballot measure in November and people will actually vote it in. So that's kind of what happens. And if you want to read more about this uh, constitutional challenge, you can read my story on mynorthwest.com.
2: Matt Markovich. thank you Matt. You're welcome, Dave. Seattle's Morning News. Time for the birthday girl.
5: Uh, thank Nikki you. Gomez, and the
2: dubious benefits of designer abs.
5: Hardcore abs don't always mean better health. Dr. Britta Larson, associate professor, UC San Diego, studied men of all backgrounds in their 60s for almost 20 years. She says the results were shocking.
9: The big surprise was that more muscle in the abdominal cavity was associated with more coronary heart disease. But why? That's kind of the frustrating thing about observational research. We don't really know why. She says research didn't find the same results in women. So there's a few possible reasons for that. It could be that women are just healthier overall. They had a much lower risk of heart disease overall. Or it could also be that women are just smaller and just didn't have as much muscle as men.
5: I asked Dr. Larson why the study is important.
9: It adds to this growing body of research on muscle being an important part of health. So for so long we have just focused on fat when we look at body composition. And muscle is an active metabolic tissue and we're seeing more and more that it is very closely related to health, to mortality, to cardiovascular disease.
5: And how do you know if you have the type of muscles that may cause heart disease?
9: That's a really good question, Um, yeah, because it's hard to go to your doctor and get a CT scan, right? So right now, no one has a way of knowing they have healthy muscle. She says scientists should start looking at muscle health as people age. Especially given the extreme risk we saw in this study that men with the highest amount of muscle had six times the risk of heart disease.
5: Mickey Gomez. Cairo News Radio. This is discouraging
2: because one of my personal goals is to have the kind of abs that intimidate people at the gym. So now you're (laughs) saying that this is not a worthy goal.
5: Well, it's not that it's not worthy. You should still work out. You should still eat well. Mm -hmm. And if you want the six-pack abs, go for it. Uh, What they did find is that leaner abs Mm -hmm. were okay. Not the bulky ones. But the big... Bulkier ones, oh, the bulky ones, like the just the massive abs and just. uh, Well, I don't know if they're on roids or not. Well, usually you get them by taking stimulants, and so um, that that is where. I
7: think the bottom line of this study for me isn't so much should you have has abs or shouldn't you. It is you cannot judge a book by its cover. That's very true. Somebody can be healthy and look soft, or somebody can be unhealthy and look very ripped and muscular. It, it, It it. talks to the whole body
5: positive positivity movement yeah it does i remember when i used to run marathons back in the day and then you would always find out that during the race somebody a marathoner collapsed from a heart attack and you're thinking well what the heck happened i mean they're a marathoner they're healthy they're otherwise there weren't any under no they had heart disease Mm -hmm. yeah and you see the person run every day or you train with them and it's 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 remarkable but common sense abs are okay Common, sense, Common abs. sense abs. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm sure. I mean, what was really well, interesting? I'll modify
2: my goal then, but I, I don't want to give up on it entirely.
5: <laughs> no, don't give up. On, well, I thought you had a six pack already. He's very well, fit, mm-hmm. isn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you're... yours. Propriety
2: forbids that I reveal anything, but um, what was okay. also
5: fascinating was that no women, uh, you know, in the study were they could have six pack abs and it was fine. not matter. Yeah. yeah. Oh, also stroke. Um, it did not cause stroke, which they found also very interesting. Uh, you know, men who had a higher risk of heart disease did not increase their risk of stroke. So that was another interesting find in the study. Thank you, Mickey. You're welcome.
2: Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross.
7: And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here.
2: And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.